0: Welcome to the April 13th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn how rare germline genetic variants in complement factor H, CFH, affect the course of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Discuss the role of coagulation factor 12 in thrombotic complications and vasoocclusion associated with sickle cell disease. And learn more about the overlapping features of therapy-related and de novo NPM1-mutated AML. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Rare Germline Complement Factor H Variants – In Patients with Paroxysmal Nocturnal Hemoglobinuria by Pedro Henrique Prata from the Saint-Louis Hospital APHP in Paris, France, and colleagues. Paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, is a rare genetic disorder caused by somatic mutations in the phosphatidyl inositol and transferase subunit A, or PIG-A gene. Mutated pig A causes impaired glycosal phosphatidyl inositol biosynthesis, which in turn leads to complement-mediated hemolysis. Clinical manifestations of PNH include intravascular hemolysis, bone marrow failure, and thrombosis. The monoclonal antibody, eculizumab, is the most commonly used treatment for PNH. It acts by binding to complement 5, arresting intravascular hemolysis, and reducing thrombosis. The clinical responses to eculizumab vary from complete to none, with some patients requiring higher doses for maximal benefit. In PNH, the impairment of complement regulation is caused by the lack of two surface complement regulators, CD55 and CD59. Studies of germline variants of complement genes in PNH are rare and, consequently, little is known about their influence on disease course. To date, the only well-documented germline variants of complement genes are the C5 polymorphism PRG885-HIS, which prevents eculizumab binding, thereby conferring resistance to this anti-C5 agent, and the hypomorphic variant of CR1, which is associated with increased surface C3 opsonization and poor response to eculizumab due to extravascular hemolysis. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that rare germline variants in regulatory genes implicated in the complement alternative pathway may influence disease presentation or response to eculizumab, and in particular, transfusion dependence six months after treatment initiation. To test their hypothesis, they studied a cohort of patients diagnosed with PNH who were treated with eculizumab for at least six months, and enrolled in the French Registry of Marrow Failure Syndromes. Studied patients had to have blood samples available for molecular profiling with next-generation sequencing. NGS was used to analyze all coding and flanking intronic sequences of complement genes CFH, CFI, MCP, and C3. Rare variants were defined as minor allele frequency less than 0.1% in the general population. Those variants which affected protein function were considered pathogenic. Others were classed as variants of uncertain significance, or VUS. Transfusion dependence, defined as more than two RBC transfusion episodes during six months, was the primary endpoint. Secondary endpoints included failure-free survival and event-free survival. The authors screened 84 patients for genetic variants and assessed the primary and secondary endpoints in 83. NGS revealed the presence of both common and rare variants in analyzed genes. A total of 16 patients harbored rare variants, of which 10.7% were CFH gene variants. Germline CFH variants were significantly more frequent among patients with PNH than in controls, or in a public database from the 1000 Genomes Project, suggesting that they may play a role in PNH pathophysiology. Interestingly, patients with germline CFH variants were more likely to be transfusion-dependent six months after starting treatment with eculizumab. Moreover, CFH germline variants were associated with statistically significant worse event-free and failure-free survival. In contrast, The more common variants CFH-PHIS-402-TIR and CR1-PHIS-1208-ARG were not associated with a different disease presentation or response to eculizumab. At a median follow-up of 5.8 years, 8 out of 9 patients harboring CFH variants had received transfusions and 2 developed thromboses. Development of aplastic anemia or progression to myeloid malignancy were not associated with either common or rare complement gene variants. Study authors concluded that these findings show, for the first time, that rare CFH variants are overrepresented among PNH patients and that germline mutations may affect the response to eculizumab. In an accompanying commentary... Antonio Risitano, from AORN S. Giuseppe Moscati Avellino in Italy, notes that the findings of an increased frequency of rare germline CFH variants in PNH patients implies either that a PIG-A mutation occurs in somatic hematopoietic stem cells at higher frequencies or that these PIG-A mutated HSCs expand over normal hematopoiesis due to an immune privilege. He further stresses that the observation that rare CFH variants may impact the response to anti-complement treatment is extremely important. Since endogenous complement regulation is largely individual and dependent on genetics, this inter-individual variability may predispose some individuals to develop complement-mediated diseases. This inherited variability may also shape the clinical phenotype of diseases such as PNH, where complement derangement is the consequence of disease and not its cause. Ricitano concludes that the study by Prata and collaborators raises several important questions, including how inherited CFH variants may impact the response to novel complement proximal inhibitors, and whether functional differences in CFH and CR1 may result in pharmacodynamic differences leading to breakthrough hemolysis, the most feared complication of proximal inhibitor monotherapy. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Factor 12 Contributes to Thrombotic Complications and Vasoocclusion in Sickle Cell Disease by Erica Sparkenbau from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in North Carolina and colleagues. Sickle cell disease, or SCD, is the most common inherited hemoglobinopathy characterized by the formation of disc shaped red blood cells. SCD is caused by a single nucleotide mutation of the beta-globin gene. Two primary manifestations of SCD are hemolytic anemia and vaso crisis. However, SCD is also associated with chronic vascular inflammation and activation of coagulation. Moreover, individuals with SCD are at an increased risk of venous and arterial thrombosis, including stroke and silent cerebral infarction. Acute vasoocclusive crises, stroke, and venous thrombosis pose significant management challenges for patients with SCD. Studies to date have shown that tissue factor-initiated blood coagulation directly contributes to ongoing adhesion, vasoocclusive crises, and vascular and organ damage of SCD. Activation of plasma coagulation in vitro occurs via the tissue factor pathway and contact factor pathway, which involves the zymogen factor 12, high molecular weight kininogen, and precalocrine. However, coagulation in vivo appears to be exclusively orchestrated by tissue factor, whereas factor 12, or F12, plays a role in the propagation phase of pathological clot formation. Research has established that F12. Triggers activation of the contact system involved in both thrombosis and inflammation, but not in physiological hemostasis. However, the exact role of F12 in the pathophysiology of SCD remains largely unknown. The current study aimed to elucidate whether F12 contributes to the thrombotic complications associated with SCD. Genetic and pharmacologic approaches utilized both clinical samples and murine models. The study included 53 patients with SCD and 23 healthy, race-matched controls. Inclusion criteria were age 18 years or older, no current treatment with immunosuppressive agents or NSAIDs, and no acute illness in the past four weeks. Eligible patients had steady-state disease, were not treated with anticoagulation, oral contraceptive, or antiplatelet therapy, and had not received transfusion in the past 30 days. The town's knock-in murine model of SCD was used to assess venous thrombosis, congestion, and microvascular stasis. The findings revealed that patients with SCD exhibit increased circulating biomarkers of F12 activation associated with increased activation of the contact pathway. Furthermore, F12, but not tissue factor, contributed to enhanced thrombin generation and systemic inflammation, when sickle cell mice were challenged with TNF-alpha. Experiments in mouse models of SCD revealed that F12 inhibition significantly reduced experimental venous thrombosis, congestion, and microvascular stasis. Moreover, thrombin generation and hepatic sinusoidal and renal congestion were significantly reduced in F12-deficient mice transplanted with sickle bone marrow. Importantly, in sickle mice, an anti-F12 antibody known as 15D10 effectively reduced heme-induced microvascular stasis and diminished the size of blood clots induced in the femoral vein. It also attenuated neutrophil adhesion and brain damage after ischemia and reperfusion of the cerebral artery. Finally, F12, Upar, and alpha-M-beta-2 integrin were expressed at higher levels in the neutrophils of patients with SCD compared to healthy controls. The authors concluded that based on these findings, F12 inhibition may provide a safe approach for preventing inflammation, thrombotic complications, and vasoocclusion in patients with SCD. In an accompanying commentary, Arun Shet from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, notes that these latest findings by Sparkenbau and collaborators provide direct evidence that the intrinsic and contact pathways contribute to thrombin generation in patients with steady-state SCD. What makes this study timely and relevant, he adds, is not only its identification of new players, but also its empirical confirmation of the dysregulation of the finely tuned interplay between inflammation and coagulation that is evident in patients with SCD. However, Shett also notes that several important questions remain, including how F12 is activated in steady state sickle cell disease and what disease determinants trigger F12 mediated thromboinflammatory complications. Understanding the mechanisms by which neutrophils activate F12 will be important to inform the development of effective therapeutic approaches that inhibit F12. Currently, anticoagulation in SCD patients with venous thrombosis is associated with a 21% cumulative incidence of bleeding by age 40 and a twofold increased risk of death, while the use of vascular access devices is associated with venous thrombosis. Shett concludes that F12 inhibition poses no additional bleeding risk and may, therefore, represent a potential paradigm shift in the management of thrombotic vascular complications in SCD. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Overlapping Features of Therapy-Related and De Novo NPM1 Mutated AML by Jad Othman from King's College in London, United Kingdom, and colleagues. NPM1 Mutated Acute Myeloid Leukemia, or AML, is a distinct subtype of leukemia with unique biological and pathological features. It accounts for approximately 30 to 35% of all adult AML cases. The clinical pathological features of NPM1-mutated AML include frequent normal karyotype, aberrant cytoplasmic localization of nucleophosmin, high expression of Hox genes, low expression or negativity of CD34, a distinct microRNA profile, high stability of NPM1 mutations at relapse, good response to chemotherapy, and favorable outcome in the absence of FLT3-ITD. Although most cases of NPM1-mutated AML originate de novo, approximately 14 to 16% of therapy-related AML defined by having a history of prior chemotherapy and or radiotherapy also harbor NPM1 mutations. It is believed that therapy-related AML results from genetic aberrations induced or selected by prior treatment, including TP53 and PPM1D genes chromosome 5 or 7 abnormalities, complex karyotypes, or clonal hematopoiesis. Therapy-related AML generally confers chemoresistance and a poor prognosis, with allogeneic transplantation frequently recommended. However, patients with therapy-related AML who also harbor the NPM1 mutation frequently have DNMT3A mutations, a normal karyotype, and are rarely associated with 7Q deletion or deletion 7 chromosomal aberrations, similar to de novo NPM1-mutated AML. Due to only a small number of patients studied to date, it remains unclear whether therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML may actually represent a de novo leukemia. Indeed, until recently, it has been simply classified as therapy-related AML, which has important clinical implications. To further the understanding in this area, the current study compared the genetics, transcriptional profile and clinical outcomes of a large series of therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML cases with those of de novo NPM1-mutated AML and therapy-related AML with wild-type NPM1. Patients were identified from four different data sources individual data was collected according to the 2016 World Health Organization criteria. Patients were divided into three groups based on the NPM1 mutation status and prior exposure to chemotherapy and or radiotherapy. The three groups included de novo NPM1 mutated AML, 2,394 patients, therapy-related NPM1 mutated AML, 96 patients, and therapy-related AML with wild-type NPM1, 390 patients. Patients who had acute promyelocytic leukemia, or those who did not receive intensive induction therapy known as the seven-plus-three regimen, or those who did not have follow-up data, were excluded from the analysis. Genomic DNA was analyzed from a total of 107 therapy-related NPM1 mutated AML cases. Using targeted sequencing for genes recurrently mutated in myeloid neoplasms. Comparator groups included 88 cases of de novo NPM1 AML and 163 cases of therapy-related AML with wild-type NPM1. RNA sequencing was also performed on a total of 96 samples. Major clinical outcomes analyzed included relapse-free survival and overall survival. A normal karyotype was found in 88% of therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML, 88% of de novo NPM1-mutated AML, and only 28% of therapy-related AML cases. DNMT3A and TET2 genes were mutated in 43% and 40% of therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML cases and 48% and 30% of de novo NPM1-mutated AML cases, respectively. In contrast, these two genes were mutated in only 14% and 10% of therapy-related AML cases, respectively. Interestingly, the TP53 and PPM1D genes, which are typically mutated in therapy-related AML, were predominantly wild-type in therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML. In both therapy-related NPM1-mutated and de novo NPM1-mutated AML cases, Hox genes were upregulated and CD133 and CD34 were downregulated. With a median follow-up ranging from 42 to 62 months, the three-year overall survival for patients with therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML, de novo NPM1-mutated AML, and therapy-related AML was 54%, 60%, and 31% respectively. Multivariable analysis revealed that overall survival was similar in the two NPM1-mutated AML groups and that therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML had a better survival than therapy-related AML with wild-type NPM1 with a hazard ratio of 1.86. Relapse-free survival was similar for patients with therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML and de novo NPM1-mutated AML, but was significantly higher in therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML than therapy-related AML with wild-type NPM1. Finally, only approximately 20% of patients from each of the three studied groups received allogeneic stem cell transplantation in first complete remission which had no significant effect on survival in multivariable analysis. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML and de novo NPM1-mutated AML have similar clinical, genomic, and transcriptomic features, and that they should be classified as a single disease entity. In an accompanying commentary, Salalettin Ustun from the Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, notes that the study by Offman and collaborators establishes that the general characteristics and biology of therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML and de novo NPM1-mutated AML are similar. This is probably the reason why the response to treatment is similar in patients with these two subtypes of AML. Furthermore, therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML does not have most of the unfavorable features associated with therapy-related AML, such as mutated TP53 and complex cytogenetics. In terms of the mutational profile, DNMT3A and TET2 mutations were common in both groups of NPM1-mutated AML, which likely represents premalignant clonal hematopoiesis and not mutations selected by chemo or radiotherapy. The limitations of the study include its retrospective design and the lack of important data on minimal residual disease, type of conditioning regimen, GVHD prophylaxis, and donor types. In addition, specific details of prior use of chemo or radiotherapy was lacking, and the definition of therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML was broad. As far as the clinical implications of study findings are concerned, Ustun notes that allogeneic stem cell transplantation may not be automatically indicated in patients with therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML in first remission. However, he suggests that both de novo and therapy-related NPM1-mutated AML seem to be good targets for several treatments, including avarinvilamide or XPO1 inhibitors actinomycin D, small molecules interfering with NPM1 oligomerizations or inhibiting menin-MLL1, arsenic trioxide, ATRA, and NPM1 mutant-specific engineered T-cells. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.